You're listening to Becoming CEO, where we share our journeys as solo founders to becoming the CEO of seven-figure businesses. And these are our behind-the-scenes conversations as we figure it out. And these are things that most people just aren't sharing. All right. So we're talking about hiring today. And um, you know, I think the stage that at least we're both in right now, um, we've had people just recently leave. Uh, I just hired someone who starts Monday. I'm replacing two people with a call it fractional service. Uh, and I also have a few other people that I'll need to hire this year. So it seems like a relevant topic. Uh, you've obviously lost someone you've brought on someone recently. So, um, I guess we've both been hiring. So when to hire, when have you like from start to finish, you know, how have you approached when you should hire? I think there's a lot of counter advice on this, like contradicting advice rather. Yeah. And it's the, when to hire really comes down to the stage of growth you're at in your business. Right. So if I think about when I was a solo, um, the, the first thing that I did was uh, as a solo, I hired a, I'm actually got to think about this. I think the first thing I did was I hired a media buyer, right? Which is super specific to my business, but um, anybody that's running ads. And I would say that that's at least in my experience, very uh, uncommon to do, to go that route first. So let me give you the thinking behind it. Uh, When I, when I started hiring, the question I asked myself was where am I most useful in the business and what gives me the most energy? And where am I least useful in the business and what gives me the least energy or rather drains my energy? And the answer, I know you've been here before too, <laughs> right? Was running ads. I don't know how to run ads. I had to force myself to learn it because I didn't have enough money to hire someone to do it, but right. I didn't know how, yeah, I wasn't very good at it. Uh, I would avoid it. Uh, I wouldn't log into ads manager very often because I sucked at it. Hmm. And so that was kind of the obvious first thing was let's get this off my plate and put it in the hands of someone who actually knows what they're doing. So I can focus on what I do better than running ads, which is everything else. (laughs) Because I am pretty much everything else I'm better at than running ads. (laughs) Um, Wait, so curious question on that. Um, Did you get that hire right? Or did you go through a handful of people early on? I don't know. I've never gotten any hire right the first time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like <laughs> I've never gotten anything right the first time, higher or not. No, it was, um, I want to say there was a couple of false starts with the wrong people, wrong contractor, mm-hmm. wrong agency before I found the right person. And, and this person, you know, I've been with for, for years now. So when it, when it stuck, it stuck really well. But so yeah, why do you, a- what, what, what do you think was the key in you having the first few not work out? Um, Part of me thinks this wasn't really avoidable. Like I had to do that and learn, but ultimately not knowing what I'm really looking for and how to vet people for that specific role, media buying, Mm. which is also very complicated to hire for because it's very technical. And unless you know all the technicalities, it's hard to vet people. but I will say this also, I was less willing to spend a good amount of money in the beginning. And so I ended up hiring cheaper people and paid the price of that 
right? As they say, hire the best and cry only once. Mm -hmm. uh, so then I did that, but I realized that the cheaper people were just cheap for a reason and it wasn't really saving much time and the results weren't great. And then I spent the money and hired a pro. Got it. Yeah. Cause I asked because how, I guess, whether I learned this way or figured it out the hard way, um, is that I've always found it really difficult to hire for something that I didn't truly understand and, or, uh, know how to do like AKA like in the ads game, like I had to, to know how ads worked, uh, enough. I didn't have to be a pro at it. I mean, I was able to get us pretty far myself, but like I needed to be able, when I vetted someone to be like, well, what would you do in my situation to like, kind of know who was the real deal or not enough to move people on in, in the interview process. And I went through at least on the media buying side. And actually now I think about it, in the sales side, uh, the first few hires that I agencies, whatever that I went through specifically in media buying. And then one sales rep specifically, the first time I hired a sales rep, I didn't know how to like, to tell if they were doing a good job. I just wanted it off my plate. And so like I suffered because of that, almost like, oh, you're the expert, you do your thing. But then I didn't really know enough to actually, you know, measure and manage. And I so I, I don't know, like I, in some areas, I feel like now if I were to teach someone, at least in in our clients, like especially ads, like you know, I'm able to give them enough stuff to get going where they shouldn't be investing in an agency or just yet. Like you need to understand the plumbing. You need to understand like how to look at the metrics and like make a decision, like learn how to launch an ad. How long does that take? Because when you go to hire someone, they're going to have to do these things and you're going to need to be able to say like, are they doing a good job or not? And that's how I was able to figure it out. So that, that was where my question was coming from in regards to that. Yeah, no, it's a, and it's a great point because you know, the topic of this show is becoming CEO. I think some people try to become CEO a little bit too quickly. <laughs> True. They hire fast, they delegate quickly, but they haven't spent enough time in the trenches to know what's good. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, Dan Sullivan's mantra, who not how, love the book, love mm -hmm. the concept, love everything about it. But honestly, if I had done the who not how thing too soon, I would have hired a bunch of people that I couldn't manage because I didn't spend time in the trenches, couldn't coach them, couldn't motivate them, couldn't support them, couldn't see if they were doing the right things, would have cost me a lot of money. And my bias, I think I paid a cost for this bias, by the way, was to hire much later than typically people otherwise would have. I, mean, I was at a seven-figure run rate uh, doing 100K a month with a full-time assistant, a media buyer on contract contractor and a copywriter on contract, like part-timers. And that's it. And people were like, you, what? I would like hire salespeople, do this, do that. And I did. And no doubt growth uh, was slower than it could have been because I, because I kept myself in a lot of those functions for a long time. But I would argue in retrospect, the, the process of hiring and replacing myself in those disciplines as painful as it was, <laughs> It would have been more painful had I done it earlier and didn't know what to look for and didn't have the credibility of having been in the trenches and all of those roles myself. So you're of so early earlier on you were I guess whether it was of the mindset or by default higher when it hurts, yeah. which is a, I think which is I think is a very common philosophy and actually I think there's people that I know today that are really successful that still hire when it hurts versus just 
hiring proactively for growth. So do you feel like that's more of like you learn to do, you learn and then based on who you're trying to hire or the role that you're trying to fill, you kind of understand, is this one of those roles where I have to hire early because I know it's going to take time to ramp up and I'm currently in the position to do so? Because I think some people, you know, especially early on, 100% under a million, it was tough for me to be like, oh yeah, I can justify bringing this person on, uh, you know, and they're like all of a sudden going to grow the business, you know, like, I don't know. That was difficult for me. Like, early on. Yeah. I definitely did hire what it hurts. Not as a strategy, just by default. Yeah. But part of that is context uh, around me. I never wanted to build a team. I didn't want a big company, even at that point. Mm. So I would only hire to the extent that I had to, because I was in pain to your point, not because I was deliberately trying to build a company. Yeah. So for me, and in hindsight, I learned this from Dan Martell, who's actually writing a book that I think is supposed to come out this year called The Buyback Principle. And his whole thing that I learned from him was, as you're growing, oh, when you go to hire, always hire to buy back your time, not to increase capacity. And I think a lot of people, especially consultants, you know, agency owners, service providers, some of those first hires, it's like, oh, I got this client. I don't know how to do all of these things. So I'm going to go hire someone that has this skill set, which isn't necessarily allowing you to serve more people because you're still involved with that client, but like this other person's involved too. And so, like in my world, like I got so many clients or enough clients early on that I couldn't do all the work. And so I hired someone in fulfillment like really early. And that gave me a lot of my time back to then figure out how to go market and get the next client. Um, and I think this is why, well, at least in my belief, and I've heard other people talk about it and I want to hear like, you know, who to hire first, but like, for me, it's always been like, uh, ops, meaning like an executive assistant of some sort, like a Jack of all trades doing admin type operational stuff and, or someone in fulfillment, depending upon if you had that already. Um, I just happened to end up doing the fulfillment piece first because the nature of like, there wasn't a lot of admin at the time. Um, but very quickly we added admin stuff and those two types of hires freed me up to be the marketing person, the salesperson, have more conversations and hit more volume. And you said you had what, three, four people when you got to hundred K months. Mm -hmm. See, I got, yeah. I had, I had one person in fulfillment. Oh, this is when we switched our model. So like when we were like full service, we had, we hit a six figure month, but it wasn't sustainable. Then we kind of shifted models into like the group coaching. I hit first of multiple six figure months with just me, me selling, me coaching and uh, a part-time assistant and one fulfillment person. Um, and, but it wasn't sustainable. And that's like, then I hired the, a salesperson, like uh, to maintain the six figure months, I had to hire a salesperson or, or else I was going to die. Like what order? So you hired a media buyer. So I went fulfillment first. You went marketing first. Is that how you would, how do you recommend this to your clients? Like who they should hire first? Is it repeatable? Yeah. It I think, I think the, the way I think about this now, and again, I don't think I was super deliberate about it at the time, but the way I think about it now is uh, find the bottleneck and solve for the bottleneck. And if the bottleneck is you solve for you. So in my example, 
um, running ads and being diligent about media buying, which takes time, <laughs> right? Yeah. And requires some discipline and focus. I wasn't doing it. And that was affecting our results. That was the bottleneck, right? And I was the bottleneck in this case. So remove myself from it, put somebody focused on that to improve throughput from that function. And then same thing with the copywriter, writing emails. I wasn't doing it. <laughs> I wasn't doing it. And that's not because I was bad at it. That's a different story. Right. I was, I'm actually great at writing emails. Wasn't doing it. It wasn't happening. It became the bottleneck. I wasn't emailing my list often enough because I had a million things to do. Right. That became the bottleneck. Hire a copywriter. And then I focused myself on sales. So marketing was, you know, I had kind of relegated myself to the talking head. I'd record ads and stuff, but otherwise like everything else got done between the media buyer and the copywriter. And I spent, you know, most of my time on sales calls and in fulfillment. And those two bottlenecks I essentially addressed simultaneously. So I hired somebody in fulfillment to help me with coaching and I started building the sales team. So I kind of tackled those two at the same time um, because they were both bottlenecks where I was selling and delivering. And that was, you know, solving for those two bottlenecks was basically an entire year. That was all of 2020 for me. Got it. That makes sense. And then when you hired them, then was, or these kind of early hires, were they uh, like, were they a service provider? Were like another, they had other clients, were they a contractor that was like planning to be like part-time going to full-time? Were they yeah. employees? Like what was the evolution of their uh, employment status, if you will? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, and I'm, uh, I'd love to get your worldview on this. I guess there's really three, in my mind, there's like three ways to work with somebody, right? They can work with them as an, as a, as a service provider agency, right? Mm -hmm. Done for you agency. And it's there. You're not really hiring a person. You're hiring a company to fulfill a function. Mm -hmm. You can work with an individual as a contractor slash freelancer. Mm -hmm. Right. Where they're working with you, but you're one client of, of, of many. Right. But you're really buying their time. Yep. And then the third is you can hire them as an employee, you know, full time employee. Right. They're they're yours. Right. You, you own their time, so to speak. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so generally, I avoid hiring employees uh, as much as possible unless it's necessary and it makes sense. And to me, like hiring an employee is a strategic decision. It's, I, I want to have a longer term relationship with this person. Mm -hmm. I want them to feel connected to the company, to the brand. And I want to make that commitment to them um, by virtue of an employment relationship. But it for us, it's always started as a, a, a contractor. You know, anybody that's become an employee in our business was initially a contractor and initially part-time. I don't think, I can't think of a single example where we've hired somebody as a full-time contractor right off the bat. They were always part-time to begin with, and they grew into full-time contractor. And then in some cases, not always into employee. And then there are some roles where remaining a part-time contractor just made sense. So for example, the marketing team, we have one full-time marketing manager, but everybody else on the marketing team is a part-time contractor. And it makes sense for them to be that way. And it, it doesn't make sense to escalate that any further yet. How do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, similar. I mean, I think, I mean, every, every single per, I can only think of one. Uh, yeah. Every single person that we've hired. Um, I think there's two scenarios where we didn't start off as part-time contractor. Um, 
then we went right into like a W2. No, that's not, I was going to think of my media buyer, but no, he was contract. He's, he was a contractor to start. Um, our EA that I just hired who starts Monday, uh, she's coming straight on the W2, even though she's starting at hourly. And really the only reason we did that is one, uh, we're already set up in Colorado as, you know, as a business and everything. And so like the, the cost slash effort to do it is really nominal and uh she preferred it even though it's like contractually it's like 60 day trial you know if it doesn't work out we're moving on sort of thing um so it doesn't really like all in all hit me that hard by doing it that way um and, uh, obviously if it works out, then we've already set them up, but that's the first one where we did it. Yeah. Everyone else was like part-time contractor. Um, I worked with an agency for media buying early on, and that did not work out. Um, I having come from agency and coaching agency owners and service providers, I don't want to ever hire them. <laughs> uh, I actually I think there's a fundamental disconnect, especially at kind of the, in our space. Um, but I have hired services, um, and things like that. And, or the small contractor who's like, you know, the contractor who you still get access to that person, but they're using some team to help, you know, there's like kind of like that hybrid. So, like they're at- so what does that mean? Are you, are you basically anti-outsourcing as a rule? No, 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 no. Not at all. I'm anti like agency <laughs> sort of for the most, like depending upon how they run it. Um, how else do you outsource if not an agency? Well, what's hiring a contractor that's outsourcing. Mm. Got it. Okay. So like, I would even say like, uh, or like hiring a productized service, not that I've used them, but like, and I guess this is role specific. We use this, this company called VidShops for a little while. It was like 600 bucks a month or whatever to edit my YouTube videos. And like I submit the video into a web platform and they have a team of editors, but like it's the same couple editors that are editing my stuff all the time. We just interact through like a software platform, sort of like what Design Pickle is for creative people. We've used services like that where it's like, it's a very specific deliverable that they're delivering and the uh requirement to interact with someone is very minimal um so like a service like that worked really really well whereas media buying like there's strategy and then like uh i think mostly it's lead gen agencies because they all some some have changed now but like the whole like x fee plus percent of ad spend i think is like a very flawed model um and also most of them, their monthly rates incorporate strategy when after the initial month or two, it's very tactical. And those tactical things are way like are way now are now way overpriced. Um, and I think there's like a, a diminishing return in, in those relationships and, and especially people that price that way, which I think is why you see a lot of people go now to pay per pay for performance, um, which is just like a different ball game, but I've seen like issues with that. Um, and I've kind of in like big agency, I've seen the problem be like, 
if you don't have a dedicated account manager of some sort, like a lot of stuff falls through the cracks or you're, or you're having to repeat yourself to every new person that you talk to. And it's like not efficient. So what I'm hearing is if it's super tactical, like very tactical, very logistical process that can be easily outsourced to somebody, contractor, productized service, something like that, you're open to it. But when we get into strategy, you sounds like you just fundamentally don't believe that external agencies are able to deliver on strategy for you, with you. Uh, no, I think they can. I don't want to be continually billed at a strategy hourly rate mm. or their, their pricing can't be all based on strategy when at a certain point, a lot of it's like hand to keyboard work, which is like- So you're okay like, to hire a consultant to come in and deliver on strategy and separate the strategy from the tactical implementation and separate engagements. Like you're, you're okay with yeah, that. 100%, yeah. Well, that's what I teach my clients. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love people that come in, like, I mean, how we- even teach our clients as well. Like, you know, you talk about your results mechanism and not to go off like a crazy tangent, but like I essentially help people productize their service. And sometimes that means that's a transition into a digital product or a hybrid of, which is like coaching, consulting, sort of like our model. And, um, some of the most effective evolutions of, you know, service to productize service to product um, in my opinion, are when you can figure out what is that like system or engine that as a consultant or a service provider, you can come in and install for a high price upfront. And then the ongoing is like the gasoline that keeps going into the engine that you just delivered that adds a recurring element versus like, Hey, I'm going to take the, the, the gasoline and the strategy, weave them into one and spread it out over 12 months. Like, I think that's a, not a good move one, because for the service provider, they don't collect enough money. And two month eight, I'm still paying for strategy that was laid out months ago. And you're just clicking keyboards and doing like recurring tasks. And I think that's, uh, not efficient for the end client either. So, uh, yeah, that's how I kind of think about it. Like when I look at some of these consultants, which we were just talking about potentially hiring one on a call earlier this week, like uh, what's the thing that they would come in and like implement? And then what's the ongoing benefit of having this person around if they aren't a full-time employee? Like, because the upfront work is always the most. So it's like, well, what's the upfront thing? Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about slash go about recruiting? Uh, I think one needs to think about it in order to know how to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just literally starting to like, you know, back to the purpose of the show, like becoming a CEO. I'm honestly in the last like three months kind of realizing that this can't be a oh, I need to find someone, let me go find them game. It needs to be mm. a, I'm always looking for talented yes. people in specific areas and yes. be having conversations and like even like buttering them up to a possibility at some point down the road. Like that's just in the last like three, four months, I kind of realized that there were a couple people that I've done that with just naturally that I didn't really realize I was doing. And you know, you're constantly selling them on your vision, but I think that's like coming out of the conversation, you know, you and I had earlier this week about a potential role. It's like, that was like a, Oh, this thing's available. Huh? Is that even the person that I would normally 
you know, go after? Uh, is it the right time? And that's when I realized like, crap, I need to be like ongoing recruiting and having conversations with smart people that I would just enjoy working with. Uh, so I don't really think I, I'm just starting to think about it. Now I need to figure out like, how do I go about Like, is there a system or a process to that? I mean, maybe you can tell me since you've clearly been doing it based on your, no, I, I, I've come to the same realization that basically at a, you know, at a certain level, it becomes your number one job to look for the next person, people group, uh, and to build that stable on that pipeline and to be constantly selling your vision to them. Uh, it, it's the most, at a certain point, it's, it is the, without a doubt, most important thing that you could be doing. Um, I had a thought this morning as I was thinking about this episode, we're hiring somebody, um, in an appointment setting role next week. And, um, the team told me that when they told him who it was for, uh, there was like immediate, you know, I want to work for that guy. And, um, and it, it, it reminded me that, you know, I think marketing, marketing has benefits far beyond customer acquisition that we sometimes take for granted. Mm -hmm. Because I think if I think of a lot of people that work for us, uh, and this is true for, you know, clients who stay with us too, and employees and contractors who work with us and continue to work with us, they're all impacted by our marketing. The more they see us, the more they engage with the brand and with me via marketing. I've never talked to this guy before mm -hmm. in my life, but via marketing, um, the more they want to work with us and stay with us. And so, yeah, obviously people in HR and recruiting talk about a, you know, a talent brand, right? That's a yeah. thing, right? Having yeah. a talent brand. I don't think we have a talent brand, but I think mm -hmm. our brand and the effort that we put into marketing is paying dividends on the recruiting side for sure. Yeah. If you ever read um, uh, the book Remote by the Basecamp company, um, they, whether it was on their podcast or in that book, they literally said like, you know, they wrote this, they wrote that book and then, you know, it doesn't have to be crazy at work or something like that. They're like, we wrote those books about our culture to find people that would want to work inside of our culture. Like it was not just documenting our process and our beliefs. It was attracting. And so it's like, that's the, that's exactly what you just said. You know, I have a buddy who's planning on writing a book and his number one reason for writing a book was to attract talent that want to kind of operate the way he believes his business runs. And I was, yeah, so I 100% buy into that. And I think, you know, that's just like, in your marketing, you know, and this goes to all the consultants and, you know, people that are like our prospects that if you're, if you're listening, like think about yourself, if you're going out into the marketplace and you're marketing yourself, yes, you go out with, with a specific message to hone in on your ideal prospect. But as a byproduct of that one, you attract people that might want to work for you Two, you're going to attract people that want to learn from you that want, like, I call it the sell the seller, like, people want to be like you and they want to learn those skills to go do something similar. Like that's a whole separate market that gets exposed and introduced to a lot of our clients just by way of now producing content and putting themselves out there that it's like the same thing happens with, you know, potential, potential hires. So, yeah. Yeah. If you think about it in a way, like you being the figurehead, the personal brand behind the company, which is true for you and me may not be true for everybody, but if that's true for you, you know, really what you're doing in marketing is you're attracting people Yeah. at large. Some of them are customers for sure. Some of them are just good, willing bystanders who are going to refer to you. 
They'll never mm-hmm. give you money, but they'll talk about you and they'll share your stuff mm-hmm. and they'll bring you up at dinner party conversations or in a forum or on Reddit or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and then some of them are want to work with you. Yeah. And you don't know it until there's a job opening and you put up a posting or they apply, but they're paying attention and they're like, I want to get around that guy or that girl at some point, if there's an opportunity. Yeah. And actually the only people that you, I'm guessing you've had this, but I think it's, I've had people specifically sales roles, like people that do like high ticket closing that have reached out, whether this was genuine or not, they're like, sometimes you could tell it's BS. Sometimes you could tell it's accurate. Like they're telling the truth that like, they're like I've been following you for X, Y, Z long. I got into X, you know, I got into high ticket sales. Like I would love to be able to work with you in some capacity. Like, is there anything going on? Which I think is super cool that one, you would do that. And so for anyone listening, like to either one of us, it's like, Hey, like if you've been listening, you want to work with like us or someone like go introduce yourself, like, like, let it be known because, you know, another thing that kind of that always be recruiting piece, like Dan Martell talks about creating your bench. And he, I remember like I went through a course of his back in the day, which I was just came up in my mind this morning while I was on the Peloton. It's like having a spreadsheet or like a mini CRM of like people that you've come across and their area of expertise or their skill set And like, if they were to work with you, like, what would you have them focus on? Like kind of creating an Excel spreadsheet of your bench players that like, Hey, like who could I potentially go reach out to on my bench and see if they're, you know, you know, just like you'd go prospecting, you'd be doing the same thing on the hiring side. And Sullivan calls it the farm team. Same concept, the, really the powerful. Farm team. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I basically, it sounds like we both need to start doing more of that. <laughs> well, you know, here it's, it's funny because I think you're right. A lot of times some people will come to you with a lot of flattery and sometimes it's just, a, it's just BS. But I will tell you this, I will not hire anybody. I'm such an egomaniac, right? I will not hire anybody unless they can convince me that they specifically want to work with us. Mm. If I think they're just looking to get a job, I go elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. I need to know that you want to work with us. And I need to hear the specific reasons as to why you want to work with us. I need to see the authenticity of that excitement or we're not doing anything together. So I'm going to ask the question and then I want you to circle back to the answer. I want like, how do you do that? Um, Like, how do you, like, what do you have them do or what are you looking for and how can you actually tell? But before you answer that, the connecting two concepts. I don't know if you did this, but like the whole, you know, who, not how, which you mentioned, and then this farm team, um, or bench players, whatever. Um, I think when you mentioned this to me like a week or two ago of like the whole who, not how, and then just the last few weeks, like having some of these conversations, just thinking about more who's and like, looking at my network of people that I'm like, Oh, like that person's talented. Like I would enjoy creating with them. Um, like where would they fit in the puzzle? Uh, actually I think just that thought makes me think more like, uh, I've just been thinking more about the who as a solution versus like I'm a systems person. So it's very easy for me to be like, Oh, tactically we need to go do this, this, and this right now. And as we've had that conversation, I'm not like thinking about that. I'm thinking about, well, who could run this so that I don't have to. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't, maybe that was a click for me recently, but because of that, I've been 
less thinking of like, here's the problem, who can solve that versus who can do these five things that I know I would do if I had the time to do it. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's the, that's the fundamental power of the idea, who, not how that Dan Sullivan preached in the book, go read the book if you haven't done it. But the the basic idea is most of us entrepreneurs, problem solvers, what we do. That's how we got Mm -hmm. here. Right. Most of us, when we have a problem, we immediately think about how do I solve this? How do I go about doing this? And often that can include hiring a contractor of this, that, and the other, but we take the, 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 the responsibility of solving for the how on our shoulders because it's what we're used to. It's what we do. Mm-hmm. But the challenge is if it's not something that is within what Dan calls you, your unique ability or whatever you want to call it, like your zone of genius, if it's not the thing that you're world-class at, then by definition, you're going to be more inefficient, more ineffective at solving the how than, than somebody else for whom that is their thing. That's mm-hmm. their jam. That's all they do. That's all they think about. And so when you, when you think who before how, like who, not how you're going to bring on people that can solve the problem far more efficiently, far more effectively with a higher degree of success than you would. And then take that time that you otherwise would have spent on the how and dedicate it towards what you're ultimately best at. Mm. And yeah, I agree. I mean, that clicked for me um, really after reading Dan's book Mm. and, and now I'll, you know, it's a very different worldview from what got me here, right? which you talked yeah, about yeah. earlier, right? Yeah, yeah. Now it's like immediately I'm thinking not how to do something, but who can I bring on service agency, contractor, freelancer, whatever it may be. I'm open to different mm-hmm. ways of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, who can ultimately not just do the tactical execution of the thing, but solve the problem. So I don't have to. Yeah. Um, okay. So circling back to the question of like how, when you were like, Hey, you need to like, want to work with us specifically how are you sussing that out yeah so i don't here's the thing about recruiting is i don't have a good methodology and it doesn't scale i don't have a system um everyone that we've hired that's stuck has come from the network Mm. either has had direct and i know this doesn't scale but i don't know how much i want to scale either right so that's a separate conversation but you know like this got us from zero to 20 people this would not get us from 20 to 100 people. So I, I know that there's a, there's a limitation here, right? But so far, at least, uh, everyone that's stuck and been a good fit with us has either had direct experience working with us as a client or uh, it has a personal relationship with myself or somebody on the team mm. or has been exposed to our marketing and developed a, a one-way relationship through that and developed an affinity towards the brand. Got it. No exceptions there. Anybody else that we brought on that didn't check those boxes ultimately didn't stick, didn't work. Mm. Makes sense. So for us, recruiting has been really kind of one or two things happened. Uh, either somebody came to us and frankly, I'm a little bit shocked at how fortuitous this has been. In some cases, we had an underperforming sales team. And, you know, one of my failures as a CEO is I've, I've tolerated underperformance and bad performance too far, mm-hmm. too long. We could probably talk about that as well. Yeah. Um, and so I was in the middle of one of these tolerating bad behavior <laughs> for too long seasons and um, former client reached out and said, Hey, I'm looking for a sales role and I can't sell anybody better than I can sell you guys. And I wasn't looking for somebody, didn't think of her. Um, but when she reached out, I started thinking about her and then she comes on and, you know, long story short, top performer on our team. 
That's one way it's happened as they came to us. And the second way is that when we needed somebody, we'd reach out into our network, put up posts on social, spread the word personally, et cetera. And people would come through the WordWorks. Uh, that's generally how it's worked for us. But then we would bet to your point about why here you can get a job anywhere. It's like a sales call really, right? Like yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we train our team to tell, to ask people, why do this? Why join our program? You can go do a million things. Why do you want to do this? They got to sell us on why this is an opportunity for them. The same is with an employee or a contractor. You got to sell me on why you want to be here. It's a million places you could be. Mm. Why do you want to be here? So what are those standards? Ooh, so it's one thing to hire top performers. It's another thing to keep them, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So one thing I've learned the hard way is um, tolerating bad behavior or subpar performance not only hurts the person, but it hurts the entire team. 100%, which I think we talked a little bit about in the previous episode on letting people go. So if you haven't listened to that one, definitely check that out. My problem is I'm too much of an empath. Mm, yeah, me too. I have a hard time firing people. And I, I just like, I, like, I love a good comeback story. <laughs> you know, so when someone's struggling deep down, I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be great if they turned it around? I'd love to, I'd love to see that. I'd love to be part of that story. Do you, so um, I had a closer who like went through this crazy slump and he was one of those people where I was like, man, keeping him around is not healthy for everybody else. I think it lowered the standard, um, which obviously I allowed to happen. We let him go. Uh, well, we first put him on a performance plan. So that was like kind of like a legit, like, so it wasn't like out of, out of the blue. Um, and he, we ended up parting ways. And so like, we're still connected on Facebook and he got put on another offer that he's crushing. Like he's like top performer in his new company. And it's like, that's in the beginning. I was like, damn, why couldn't you do that for me? And then I'm like, then I got over that really quick. And I was like, that's awesome. Like, because, you know, what do they say? You know, uh, like uh, there's never been a situation where I let someone go or fire them and I didn't find somebody better. Like usually the person who's getting let go will find something better. Right. Like, and that person did, but yeah, it was all started from poor standards. So yeah, definitely don't let that like, don't tolerate that. Well, that's interesting. So there's a belief there when you're tolerating bad behavior, poor performance, there's, I think there's a subtle belief that's true for me, at least. And I'm realizing it as you tell your story that we should be able to make anybody work at the highest level. I should be able to take somebody off the streets and get them to perform at the highest level. And that's probably a dangerous belief. Uh, I don't, I don't agree with that. Yeah, I don't, I don't either consciously, but I'm starting to realize that that might've been like, like, why can't I, I, I have a hero complex too, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have many complexes. Yeah. yeah. But one of them is like, you know, why can't I make this guy work? Why can't I get them to succeed? That becomes a challenge to me, which is not super healthy, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I think like, I don't know where, who I heard this from, but like, I would, you can teach the skills. You can't teach the attitude and like, um, you know, and then, so there's attitude, I think then there's skills. And so do they have the right attitude? Can I get them the skills or do they already have those skills? And then 
like whether this is part of attitude, not like perseverance and, or grit or, um, like are like, how are they going to handle themselves through tough times? Right. Because, you know, as I tell our clients and our team, like when we have clients come in, you know, we're a very done with you program. And I'm like, y'all, like, we're going to show you exactly step-by-step, step, but like this program is like batteries, not included. Like you need to come with the batteries. Like you need to come with the energy and like, I can't motivate you like, cause that's gonna, that's gonna die out. Like you need to be able to bring that and do that for yourself. We have the plan, we have the support, but like, I can't make you go through this or show up with energy every single day. Like that's on you. Like I'll give you systems for it. And I think the team is the same way, you know? Like if you're showing up and it's like, okay, cool. Like you got the skills attitudinally, you're pretty good, but like, you can't motivate yourself like, or, I mean, you're not going to make it. Uh, so I kind of look out for stuff like that. Like how do they navigate through some of those things? And that's part of what I talk about in the hiring process also, because we've had tough months. We always find little ways to like pull it out and make it, you know, salvage bad months for the most part. And like that requires a certain type of person, you know? And so if that, if I can suss that out in an interview, I am 100% looking for like, yo, when you're at the bottom, like, what do you do? <laughs> you know, how are you going to respond when it feels like we're losing hard because there will be moments where we feel like we're losing hard. Like I need you to show up. Well, you hit me hard with that line. You can teach skills. You can't teach attitude. That's, I always believed I could teach attitude. That's been a failing of mine without yeah, a doubt. I, I don't think you can do that. That's why like, um, and for certain roles, I don't know if this applies to every role. I haven't thought this through all the way, but like, I think when like interviewing, there's been people where I'm like, well, this person has the skills, but their attitude's all wrong. And then there's this person's like, their skills are weaker, but their attitude's amazing. I'm like, I will hire the person with the right attitude and less skills over the person with more skills and the wrong attitude every single time. Um, because again, I can't teach the attitude, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I think attitude can probably fade over time also. So like, you know, and if your desire changes, your attitude might change. So, I mean, there's, there's elements to that, right? Like if I, if you, if I teach attitude and it's not truly ingrained in you, like then, yeah, I've created this thing that maybe is a temporary mold that, you know, won't hold, you know, and then, oh, now it's why it didn't work because like, I forced them into this or they forced themselves into this and tried to fit in and make it work. And it didn't. Is it irony if the topic of this episode was hiring and now I want to go fire some people? Is that <laughs> irony? Well, just think about this. If you fire people, you get to hire people. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I mean, honestly, my big takeaway here from this, the, the most recent segment of this conversation is it's okay to fire. It's okay to let them go. You're doing them a favor. You're doing yourself a favor because you can't fix everybody. They can't all fit into your system. And the longer you keep underperformers, the longer you delay the inevitable. And it just gets worse for everybody. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And I mean, I think hopefully if you're in a hiring state or mode and you were wondering who to hire first, that kind of how we tackled it was helpful. Um, because... Actually, let me ask you this, like, cause we did kind of cover a couple mistakes, you know, like letting performers stay too long, but like, do you feel like you ever, uh, hired either 
not, I don't want to say incorrectly, but like you hired to try to solve a problem when like, it was like kind of adding more complexity to the business. Like, Hey, you should have done something else versus hiring someone to fix this problem. Like, like bloat, like, like there's some bloat, you know? Yeah. I struggle with that. Uh, for sure. Uh, I think I took like the who not how methodology and really ran with it and started hiring a bunch of people, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, consultants, contractors, advisors, agencies, et cetera. And in some cases, those haven't worked out. We've talked about those situations in particular. Um, but I'm not sure it was the philosophy that failed me or if it was just mm-hmm. trial and error. Like sometimes it's the first, the first hire is not the right one. The first agency contractor consultant's not the right one. And you got to cycle through a few to to find the right fit. I think that's, that's just that there's a little bit of just growing pains there that you have to overcome and go through. Um, but I would say, yeah, for the most part, I have no regrets on making the decision to bring somebody on. It's just that the first hire or second mm-hmm. wasn't always the right fit. It's like the first pancake, you know, you Look, usually got to throw yeah. that one out. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me actually ask you a question. Um, Cause I definitely have moments where, uh, and I think you've experienced this too, but like, talk to me about, um, cause you worked with a, like a financial planner or something at some point, I remember like an overhead, AKA team, or maybe it was just overall expenses should not exceed X percent of top line. Like what was that percent is the first question. And then uh, did you experience kind of like between the 1 million to, I think you're pacing for five or even one to three, did you feel like there was like a lot of tension in like, man, I feel like in order to take the next leap, I need to hire, which makes things really tight. And if we have a bad month, it's really tight or we lose money. Like, is there, cause that's like the phase that I feel like I'm in. It's like, you know, we talked about this. So is there like a percentage that you've been aiming for that you look, look at? And then is there a, a, a window of revenue and growth phase where you're like, you just throw it out the window? No, I've never felt that way before. <laughs> It's not a, it's not a thing. Okay. Next oh, episode. you're digging into my pain now. All right. So, uh, nod to Adam Rundle of clever profits, um, mm, who I got right, this yeah. from that I've been working with for a long time. So he has certain benchmarks in his perfect PL, depending on your business model for a done with you, uh, offer mm-hmm. it's, um, you want l- marketing and labor to total 55% of top line. Marketing and labor to basically total 55%. 55%. And that's actually true for any business. It's just that the the concentration of marketing versus labor will differ depending on if you're done for you or done with you. So on a done for, done with you offer, marketing is going to be higher, labor is lower. On a done for you offer, marketing will be lower, labor, labor will be higher. But in the end, you want that you to said, total you said, 55%. You said, you said done for you twice. I know what you meant. Sorry. But- yeah, in a done with you context, marketing is higher labor is lower. And a done for you context, marketing is lower, labor is higher. But in either case, 55% is what you want that to come under. And then 15% for overhead, leaving you with 70% pre-tax, pre uh, 30% rather pre-tax profit margins. So below, um, below 55% and then 15%, what was the 15? Overhead. Overhead. That's not including marketing or labor. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, but to answer your question, uh, 
basically between one and three million, uh, I have always felt like we're going to run out of cash nonstop <laughs> all the time. Okay. Like it's not so, been so gone away. So if I'm hearing this correctly, uh, I've made it. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> and, and here's why, like, uh, this has also been strategic for me is I have, I have now in the past couple of years started hiring uh, uh, in anticipation of growth, mm-hmm. right? So I've set, I've set up a certain cost basis in terms of labor. That's a high watermark. And I've done mm-hmm. that for a few reasons, largely strategic. Sometimes mm-hmm. I regret it. Right. But I, I ultimately don't regret it. Um, because I know now like my, my watermark is higher. I know what I need to make to break even. And I know what I needed to make to be profitable. So now we're in a season, for example, this year, 2022, where I am not touching my cost basis. I am not hiring. I'm not adding capacity. All I'm doing is squeezing more profit out of the machine that I have. So I'm pushing top line without touching my fixed costs at all. So I went through, uh, you know, probably a one to two year. Real, what about your, what about your variable costs? Yeah, that's going to move obviously, <laughs> but the profit, the profit will still grow as the fixed cost stays where it is. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm at a point now where, well, getting to a point now where my only real lever is going to be advertising spend. That's going to squeeze out more profit and the basic machine, the fixed cost that delivers that profit is not going to move. It's the same cost. But I made that decision strategically to mm-hmm. build the capacity really quickly and and take the hit on profit for you know years in my case now, so I can earn the right to um, dial things up when I need to and then you know kind of reap the harvest if you if you will. Got it. That makes sense. Cool. Maybe it does. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Jury's out. Whether that was a good move, but it's the move I made. Yeah, uh, that's insightful. Uh, do, I don't think we really covered it. I don't know if you want to hop into indoor, leave it for another time. Um, the keeping good people. Um, yeah, it's a big topic. Let's do that on the next episode. Okay, let's next episode, guys. We'll cover, uh, you know, things we're doing or whether it was by accident, because there's definitely a few, I think that, that keep people around and then maybe things that we're intentionally planning, which I definitely have a few of, uh, that we have, uh, in the works. So good stuff, man. This, uh, I feel like I'm, uh, 0.03% more of a CEO today. <laughs> yeah, no, this was uh, really helpful. I, I had, a, I had my own number of aha moments. Good chat. See you next time. As always, take it easy, guys.